Warning, this episode contains brain food that will lead to improved emotional and social intelligence. Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven media that promotes well-being from the inside out. Each week, Lisa spotlights diverse trendsetters and change agents who are the greatest contemporary thinkers and doers, devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen, is a widely recognized applied positive psychology expert, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in optimal lifestyle management. Let's get to it. Here's Lisa. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Thanks for joining us on today's show, where you will learn the truth about self-awareness, how to communicate better at home so you can succeed in life. My first guest is Dr. Tasha Yurek. This episode originally aired in October of 2017. Let's have a listen. And my first guest today is Dr. Tasha Yurek. She's the author of Insight, Why We're Not as self aware as we think and how seeing others clearly helps us succeed at work and in life. Dr. Tasha Yurek is an organizational psychologist, researcher, and New York Times bestselling author. With a PhD in organizational psychology, she is also the founder of the Yurek Group, where she's helped thousands of leaders and teams improve their effectiveness through greater self-awareness. Dr. Yurek has contributed to Entrepreneur, CNBC.com, and the Huffington Post, and has been featured in outlets such as Forbes, the New York Times, Fast Company, and Inc., and she's here today. Dr. Yurek, welcome. Thanks, Lisa. Great to be here. Oh, great to have you here. Your first book was a New York Times bestseller entitled Bankable Leadership. What is it about self-awareness that has piqued your interest for the subject of this book? It's it's such a great place to start because my passion for the topic of self-awareness really started out as a slow burn and ultimately became something that that felt so important to me as a researcher that it completely changed the course of my career. I was, uh, I am still an organizational psychologist. I focused primarily on leadership. But as I was doing this work, as I was coaching executives and companies, I sort of saw two types of, of executives. Type one was somebody who, you know, really wasn't very clear on who they were or what they wanted or what they valued and was also not clear on how other people saw them. And so these are people usually who, you know, they could get promoted, but they're ticking time bombs in a way where it's not a matter of if, but when you really start to get in your own way, whether or not you know it, um, whether or not you're willing to work on it. I just saw that time and time again. It was so limiting for people. The other side of the coin uh, that I saw so many executives and I got to work with so many people who put the time and energy in to really seeing themselves clearly and understanding how other people saw them. And those people were always not just more successful, but they were to the subject of this. They were happier. They were more fulfilled. They were more confident. They were less stressed. 
And so that was really what set me off on this course to say, you know, we toss around the word self-awareness a lot at, at work and in life. Usually we talk about it in the absence. We say, oh, that person isn't very self-aware. But I was surprised at how little scientific research actually existed. And so that's what my research team and I have been doing for almost the last four years. And, and that leads me to the question, uh, to ask you to define what is self-awareness, because I think we think that we know what it is, you know, but, you know, I'm sure you can define three or four or five basic tenets of what it is exactly. Exactly. So there overall at a high level, there are sort of two categories of self-knowledge. So one of them I call internal self-awareness in my work, uh, which is, you know, sort of what most people think. It's having an inner clarity about your values, your passions, your aspirations, understanding your personality as examples. But the other side of the coin is something that we call external self-awareness. And what that means in a nutshell is having having clarity about how other people see us. And in our research, one of the things that really surprised me, to be honest, was those two types of self-knowledge were totally independent. So what that means is you can be high on both, you can be low on both, or you can be high on one and low on the other. And it creates, you know, sort of several archetypes of people, but that's a really good place to start for folks who want to improve their self-awareness or who want to get a better idea of, of where they stand is to say, you know, how clear am I internally and then how clear am I externally? I would guess that we do a better job of the internal self-awareness than the external self-awareness. I do think that culturally, uh, especially Americans, you know, we've been raised to be uh, fairly self-absorbed, you know, and I think yeah. sometimes that can be good. <laughs> sometimes it can get in our way. And you're right. It, it's it's scary to ask for feedback. It's scary to to try to determine if other people see us the same way we see ourselves. But but I do find people in my work who who are the opposite. I, I call them pleasers. They are folks who are so beholden to or so focused on how other people see them that they kind of live the lives that other people want them to be living. And they, they've either lost sight of or they haven't even done the work to explore what they really want. And so that, that leads to this sort of inauthentic life of, you know, quiet desperation. Inspiration, I think, and and low self esteem, right? If if all if we're making our um, well our emotional well being predicated upon what others think of us, we're we're, we're out of referenced, right? And ultimately, the a good self esteem comes from uh, that inner place of, of of reference that I that I'm I'm good and I'm competent and I've got good values and I'm making an impact in the world and I feel good about myself is a is a starting point that's healthier. It is. And I always talk about the importance of self-acceptance when you're also building your self-awareness. Mm. There, there are people who have, <laughs> there are a lot of people that have high self-esteem without any, you know, objective awesomeness. And I think we all know those people who sort of overrate themselves. But then there are so many people who, it's like the opposite side of the spectrum. They don't, they're so hard on themselves that they don't really have an appreciation for their gifts and their strengths and all the wonderful things they're bringing to, you know, the people that are close to them in their lives. So I think everybody has a different journey, but you brought up something really important that 
you know, I think it's worth asking yourself, where do I fall on that spectrum? Oh, well, I'm, I'm curious myself, but let's talk a little bit further about insight, why we're not as self-aware as we think and how seeing ourselves clearly helps us succeed at work and in life. When in the book you talk about 95% of people fancy themselves as self-aware, but we know that the figure for real self-awareness is closer to 10 to 15%. Wow. That's Amazing, wow right? to me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this really has caught my attention. So like there's a little bit of self-deception going on. The joke I always make about this, you know, with 95% of people think they're self-aware, 10 to 15% actually are, is that on a good day, 80% of ourselves or 80% of us are lying to ourselves about whether we're lying to ourselves. Yikes. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm laughing here because we, we do fancy ourselves as a society that is becoming more self-aware. You, people are journaling, they're going to yoga, they're, they're meditating, they're juicing, they're, you know, they're doing all these things that the, that, and the media, you know, how the media has evolved is really supports that, that, you know, make us more self-aware, but is it really self-awareness at the core level? You know, or is it just a trend? You know, like we're you know, doing yeah, exactly. what's trendy. Yeah. And then the question is, am I, am I being self-absorbed or am I being self-aware? And I see those two things as qualitatively differently. Um, and, and, you know, we found in our research and we've, we've looked at almost 800 scientific studies. We've surveyed thousands of people all around the world. Um, and we've really found that people who are self-aware are, have this sort of, um, curious and open, uh, feeling about themselves. And they're always wanting to learn more versus being so focused on themselves that they, are unwilling to see themselves for who they really are. It's kind of a paradox. And I think you're absolutely right that society is, you know, we sort of think we're more self-aware because we're doing all of these things for ourselves. But that doesn't mean we have clarity. It doesn't mean we see ourselves um, as we really are. We are going to take a break in a minute. And when we come back, we're going to continue the conversation about self-awareness with Dr. Tasha Yurick. To learn more about Dr. Tasha Yurick, you can go to www.insight-book.com or her core website, which is tashayurick.com. You can find her on Twitter at Tasha Yurick and on Facebook, Tasha Yurick. And Yurick is spelled E-U-R-I-C. Age. I am loving this conversation because I, I want to go back, Tasha, when we come back from the break about how others perceive us and the externally referenced way that we can perhaps improve our self-awareness. Here comes that break. We'll be right back. And that is a promise. To learn more about cultivating sustainable well-being at home and the office, visit HarvestingHappiness.com and explore Lisa's experiential on-site brain fitness workshops, corporate programming, and speaking engagement services. Welcome back to the show. If you're just joining us now, we're having a conversation about the truth of self-awareness, how to communicate better at home so you can succeed in life. My guest today is Dr. Tasha Yurick, and this conversation originally aired in October of 2017. Let's return and have a listen. 
Tasha, before the break, we were getting into the differences between being internally self-aware and externally self-aware and the incongruency of perception, right? Like that, that we believe ourselves to be more self-aware than we really, really are. So we're, we're not doing so hot in that department. But what can we do to improve self-awareness, both internally, which I think we're doing maybe okay at, but externally? Sure. And and those are big questions, obviously, but just to, to give your listeners something practical, maybe maybe I'll give one tool for each. So for those of you that, that think you might want to work on internal self-awareness and really kind of seeing yourself clearly, knowing what you want, knowing what you're about, how you fit into the world, there's a lot of research, very surprisingly, that shows that the process of self-reflection, you know, kind of introspecting and saying, what am I really about? is very, very flawed for most people. And it's not that um, it's it doesn't work. It's just that we often fall into traps that we don't even know we're falling into that can suck the insight right out of the experience. And without going into too, too much detail, one of the most surprising findings is, you know, if we sort of do this like deep psychological excavation where we try to figure out the, the, the core reason for why we're doing what we're doing or why we're in a certain situation, it's often often not as productive as it feels. So what I tell people is instead of going deep, go wide. And what I mean by that is instead of taking one situation or one negative event and really just trying to explore that on its own, there's a lot of evidence that people who look for patterns and themes over the course of their life tend to have a lot more internal self-awareness. So for example, if I'm in a job that's making me miserable, Instead of, you know, disappearing down that rabbit hole and, and, and starting my self-loathing or just feeling stuck or feeling victimized, I can pull back and I can curiously ask myself, this is interesting, what other situations in my professional career, you know, have been similar to this? And what are the commonalities that exist? What do those situations have in common? And those are the types of questions that the research has shown are a lot more productive and they're actually a lot more enjoyable. The, the process of internal self-awareness doesn't have to be hard and depressing and anxiety provoking. And I think so many of us accidentally turn it into that. So that would be the internal tool for external self-awareness. Uh, you know, the really simple um, piece of advice I would give is Try to find people who you know want you to be successful in your life and people who are also at the same time willing to tell you the truth. And I call those people loving critics. You think about all the people that you love and that you value. Not every one of them is going to be a loving critic. You know, I, I always use the example of my mom. If I gave her uh, my latest manuscript to read, she is loving but she would say, this is the best book anyone's ever written. There's not a single thing wrong with it. It's a masterpiece of humanity. And so for that reason, uh, you know, if I, if I want to be talked up, she might be a good person to talk to. But if I really want to understand how I'm showing up, she might not be the best person. And, and the best loving critics in our lives are not always the people we're closest to. In, in our research, looking at, you know, sort of investigating what highly self-aware people do differently, not only did we find that they were very picky about who they listened to, but sometimes they had peripheral acquaintances that they believed gave them better feedback than the people that were closest to them, which I think is really fascinating. Oh, yeah. I, I, so what I hear you saying is that is this constructive feedback is also about like perception checking 
and um, perspective taking, you know, asking others to, you know, like really check in. It's not like, how am I doing at a girl? It's like, you know, can you tell me, like, did, how did you perceive that? You know? Exactly. I, yeah. This is a very, very powerful tool. I think so. And I think, you know, again, sometimes people hear external self-awareness and the importance of external self-awareness and, and they sort of jump to this place of, you know, I have a belief that the way other people see me is none of my business. And I think as, as lovely as that seems, that the people who work on this in a self-accepting way and really trying to get that data, um, they're able to have deeper and more meaningful relationships. And I think at the end of the day, when we're talking about happiness and fulfillment and calm, that's a really huge part of it. Yeah. And don't you want to know if you're being congruent? I mean, I, I'm, I want to know. <laughs> I want to know, too. We were talking during the break. I was giving you an example. Um, I'm, I do a lot of speaking to share my work, and I did a keynote on Monday that I, in my mind, you know when you sort of get stuck in something like that, and the whole time I was just going, oh, this is terrible, this is horrible, worst talk I've ever done. And then I start talking to the audience, and, and my couple members of my team were there, and they said it was great. And I knew that they weren't saying it just to say it because they're always really honest with me. They're great, loving critics. But I'm always just fascinated by how differently we can see ourselves in a certain situation um, than how other people are seeing us. And sometimes it's good versus bad. Sometimes it's the other way around. But I think we owe it to ourselves to just check those perceptions. Let's talk about self-awareness unicorns. I love this term. (laughs) puts a smile on my face. I have to tell you that. <laughs> Me too. And you, I'm a little and, biased. But. Yeah, and you found them. Talk about them. So uh, this is one of my favorite parts about our research. We started actually by examining people that were just self-aware sort of by nature. You know, they've sort of always been good at that. And what, what I started to discover very quickly was, you know, when I asked them, what, are, what do you do to stay self-aware and, and how do you make sure you're seeing yourself clearly? I would get these answers that were, you know, infuriating. They would say, well, I don't know. I guess I, I just do it. I guess I just am. And I said, as a researcher, that is not helpful to me. And so, you know, God bless them for helping us. But I sort of had this, this uh, insight, for lack of a better word, that it, if we wanted to hack the code of self-awareness, if we wanted to find out, you know, what are the myths and realities around what it takes to get there, we would have to find people who didn't start out self-aware but who became self-aware through a you know really incredible amount of commitments um, and just a transformational improvements in their lives, and so we we literally searched the world far and wide, and we found fifty five zero people who made remarkable transformations in their self-awareness as rated by themselves and someone who knew them well. And it was so fun. We did these incredibly in-depth interviews with them. You know, I've got hundreds of transcripts, pages of interviews where we tried to figure out what are these people doing differently? And just as one example that I think is fascinating, um, you know, I always talk about social media being, a, you know, sometimes pretty risky, sometimes makes us more self-absorbed and less self-aware. We found that the unicorns spent more time on social media than the average person. 
And I thought, what the heck does that no. mean? Right? It makes no sense. No. But then <laughs> we found we found how they were using it was completely different. So instead of logging in and posting, you know, a, a picture of their five and a half half month old baby or their latest work accomplishment, they would they would use social media as a way to make other people's day better. So they would post a funny article or a beautiful photo or something that was really geared towards others versus themselves. And I just think that's such a great example of where we make these assumptions about, you know, what self-awareness and how to get there. And it's not always bearing out in the data. And that was why it was so important for us to look at these folks. This is incredible, you know, because we believe that we are becoming even more of a narcissistic nation. And and this is because of social media and the ability to really promote yourself in such a powerful way. But what I'm hearing you say is that when we are using social media or the media as a tool for the greater good, so in other words, it's not about me, it's about the we, that these people become more aligned internally as well as externally with their awareness. Amazing, right? Amazing. Amazing. And, and, and such a good challenge for all of us. It's like, you know, how can we make it about our place in the world? You know, the contribution that we make. Cause wasn't it Rockefeller that said something like the only thing that we have to show for our lives when we die is what we gave away? That's amazing. I love that quote. Right. I mean, really. And that's, that's huge self awareness for, from a man who had everything. You know, it's, it's, um, it's interesting. So let, let's talk more about, um, ways that we can maybe engage our friends and family in generating self-awareness. Many of our listeners are our parents and grandparents, and we've got a whole generation of kids who are being raised, you know, it's kind of in the selfie nation. Yeah. How can we support them? So really quickly, there's one study I came across that I think says it all um, for parents who want to raise non-self-absorbed, self-aware children. And what the study found was the more parents emphasized how special their child was in talking to them, you know, on a daily basis, the more narcissistic they tended to be. But if the parents focused on warmth and showing them love and kindness, those were the kids that not only were they less narcissistic, they were more confident and they were more compassionate to others. So I think for parents, you can play a role in this. And that's the beauty of it is we do have more control than we often think. Wow. The book, once again, that we're talking about today is Insight, Why We're Not As Self-Aware As We Think and How Seeing Ourselves Clearly Helps Us Succeed at Work and in life. And my guest and the author of this wonderful book is Dr. Tasha Yurick, who's an organizational psychologist, researcher, and the New York Times bestselling author. And um, you can find more about her and her work at TashaYurick.com. And for this book, you can go to www.insight-book.com, where I think you can find a little quizzy poo. Is that true? <laughs> yes, this is for the good of humanity. We've put together yes. a quiz that can help you get a high-level read on your own self-awareness. Awareness. You fill out 14 questions. It's, it's very fast. You send a survey to someone who knows you well, and you actually get back information on your internal and external self-awareness and a few things you can do right away to build that self-knowledge.
Oh, I love this. And we love quizzes. And we're going to get a whole, is there a, a separate link for the quiz that we can share on social you media? You can find it on the, on the book website, insight-book.com. But if you want to go right to the quiz, it's insight-quiz.com. Oh, uh, we, we are so going to share that quiz. <laughs> People Thank love you. it. I mean, I love it. I think it's just such a great tool. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Fantastic. So once again, the book is um, the book can be found at www.insight-book.com on Twitter at Tasha Yurik and on Facebook, Tasha Yurik. Here comes that break. We'll be right back. Did you know that happiness is actually good for your health? Happy people live longer, are more productive and make better partners, parents and professionals. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness. And follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. Welcome back. If you're just joining us now, we're having a conversation about the truth of self-awareness and how to communicate better at home so you can succeed in life. My next guest is Eric Maisel. This episode originally aired in September of 2017. Let's have a listen. Eric Maisel, PhD, is a retired family therapist, an active life coach, and the author of more than 50 books, including his latest, Overcoming Your Difficult Family. He has been quoted or featured in a variety of publications, including Martha Stewart Living, Red Book, Glamour, Men's Health, the San Francisco Chronicle, and Self. He resides in the Bay Area, and I'm delighted to welcome him back on the show. Hi, Eric. Hi, Lisa. Great to be back with you. Oh, a real joy. So let's talk about family dynamics. Why can they be so complicated? What's the story? Well, there's a lot to say there, isn't there? Yes. Well, let's start with a place that psychology ignores, and that's the idea of original personality. I have a simple little model of personality that we're all made up of three parts, original personality, formed personality, and available personality. And what this means to me, and I think it's true, anybody who's had kittens or puppies or kids, I think knows that every creature comes into the world already himself or itself or herself. As I say, psychology pays no attention to that. It acts like everybody starts out from the same place and develops or undevelops, but that just isn't true. We're all already somebody, which means that family members, you you too, but your family members each may have come into the world a little sadder than the next person, a little more anxious than the next person, a little more prone to addiction than the next person. That is, they're already on their own journey from birth. And so even as much as they might love it to be part of a happy family, they still have to deal with their own original personality first. And most people don't have uh, good ways of dealing with that personality. So that's one, one of the many kinds of tensions in family life that we could talk about. And and then the go on and, and list the other two personalities because I think this is fascinating. Yeah, the second I call formed personality. That's that's the personality that accretes over time. That's sort of our cemented personality, our repetitious personality. And then the third I call available personality. It's really kind of an existential concept. It's the freedom that remains, the freedom that remains for us to be the person we would actually like to be. And I, I kind of hold that as an amount that changes over time. If you're, 
you're currently an addict running around town looking for a fix, I don't think you have a lot of available personality available. <laughs> you yeah. know, but then if from one day to the next, you know, you run your car into a tree, you hit bottom, you you, you go into AA or NA, I think on, the, on that very next day, there's more of you available to do the hard work of becoming the person you want to be. So those are the three parts, original personality, formed personality, and available personality. And, and in my model, original personality isn't so important in one sense, because I think, first of all, it's hard to know who we came into the world being. I think what's most important is available personality. That is our freedom that allows us to be the person we'd actually like to be right now. And uh, and the available personality is uh, a huge component of choice, right? What are we willing to give or share of ourselves? Yeah, and the less that we're consciously making choices, the, the more that means that we don't have much personality available. It means that we're coming from our repetitive, formed place, the place that just does things over and over again. We know the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result, but that's what human beings do. They do the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. When we talk about the original personality, what I like in your description is that, you know, each of us is born, we come into the world, and the character personality that we arrive with is the byproduct of several things, right? It's part DNA, part perhaps even the dynamic in the family home during the pregnancy, I mean, we have no way of really knowing, but then Absolutely. we come into the world and each each sibling, each person within that family dynamic is subjected to the same setup. Exactly. And um, I'm not a, an occultist or someone like that, but I, I actually really believe in mystery. And I think it's really mysterious how each creature is already itself when that creature comes into the world. I don't think we know anything about that. To be sure, there's some things we could say about DNA and what goes on in the womb and what have you, but I think there's stuff beyond that <laughs> that's mysterious. Um, we just were blessed with new twin granddaughters who are now one year old in a day or two. Oh, wow. And one came out of the womb, um, a Buddha girl, pensive, stoic, observant. And the other has got so much chi, so much light. She's running everywhere. They're just different people. And they're going to be, they're going to be different. They're already different people and they already know each other's personalities at one year old. And, and they're going to be together for a long time being different people. You know, it's funny you mentioned that about the, your twin grandchildren and also about siblings is that the relationship that we have with our siblings is the longest enduring bloodline relationship that we will have. It's and not our of, parents. One of, hardest, one of the hardest, it turns out, I've been really surprised. I've done maybe, I would say, 30 or so interviews in, in support of this book so far, and every single host has wanted to bring up their siblings and their rupture or break with one or more siblings. So there's something about the, I think there's something really un, un, underexplored about the difficulty of sibling relationships. So we know something about sibling abuse and, and how siblings fight when their parents get old and then, it's, then there are decisions around who's going to have to take care of the aging parents. There are some dynamics that we have looked at a bit, but the basic dynamic of how difficult sibling relationships are is really underexplored. Well, I'm happy to say that I have three siblings, so there are four of us, and 
I love them. And everybody in my family is crazy as a loon, right? I mean, we're all like a perfectly dysfunctional, happy Jewish family. So we're loud, we argue, we're psychologically minded, and everybody is in the healing arts. So it makes for a good time. Yeah, and so so it sounds like if, if I'm correct in, in my vision of what's going on, it sounds like you're the exception. <laughs> yeah. And I think the rule looks to be um, that, that siblings don't get along very well. That, that does look to be the rule. Just parenthetically, if, if the question arises, uh, am, I, am I overstating how difficult families are? If you just think of the following statistics, that half of all marriages end in divorce and three-quarters of all second marriages and third marriages end in divorce, and there's got to be another sizable percentage that ought to end in divorce where people stay together for the sake of the kids or for financial reasons or for cultural reasons. We're looking at maybe 60, 70, 80 percent of all marriages being unhappy, basically. And that's got to affect everybody in the family, not just that dyad. So I really don't think we're overstating things when we paint a picture of family life being really pretty difficult. That I do agree, that the family life is, is very challenging. I see that um, part of the challenge comes from the dynamic between parent and child, you know, um, accepting the growth or transition from the relationship being one of parent to child to being perhaps two parents that come together and share that relationship in a very, very different way, although one of them is a grown child. Does that make sense? It does, and um, I started out in in my own crazy Jewish family, but only (laughs) till I was five years old. There was an extended family, but then my mom and I moved out to Brooklyn from the Bronx uh, when I was about five or so, and then I had a very quiet time thereafter with just my mom. I loved it. I loved the quietness of it, but I noticed among all my friends that when Dad came home at five or six or whenever Dad came home, all hell would break loose. That kind of everyday tyranny that, I don't know, dads of that time, but I think maybe dads of all time, and I don't mean to just single out dads, but just there was something about coming home from work and sort of banging around the house and, you know, getting the TV on and needing dinner and needing the kids to be quiet and and all of that dictatorial stuff that I was so pleased not to experience. I suspect that still goes on, and I suspect that's still a dynamic between parents and kids that uh, kids have trouble surviving. Even adult children, you know, often I hear, yeah, the the, the dynamic is very, very challenging when you've got a 50-some-odd-year-old child and a 70- or 80-some-odd-year-old parent that the... um, the roles still stick. And I guess that's what really intrigues me about your book is what skills and or tools can we use to survive a difficult family dynamic, whether it's our parent with our parents or siblings or cousins or what have you. Yeah, let me go to that. But just before I go there, I just want to say one thing about this particular moment in our history, and that's the divisions over politics and families. Oh, Yeah. I'm not even going to say any more than that, but if if there are psychological dynamics between parents and kids and among family members, there are also these um, really um, edgy and dramatic political differences among people right at the split second that's causing all kinds of ruptures and fights and, and hatred among family members. But oh, 
Well, I listen, we're, we're, we're going to have to jump off to a break. So it's actually a good sure. time to, to segue to that because I, 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 I have experienced that in my family um, this election where from out of left field, we had some fence jumpers. And that really was surprising and really caused a lot of uh, consternation and really hard discussions. So maybe we can just touch upon that. Um, sure. When we come back and then and then continue on with some some tools to you know help us help ourselves, Eric, please. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but listen, let's go to the break and let me give um, the contact information. The book that we're talking about today is Overcoming Your Difficult Family: Eight Skills for Thriving in Any family situation. To learn more about Eric Maisel and his work, please visit www.ericmaisel.com. You can find him on Twitter at Eric Maisel and on Facebook, Eric.Maisel. Here comes that break. We'll be right back. And that is a guarantee. Who says money can't buy happiness? Whether you are a skeptic or seeker, check out Lisa's new book. Are we happy yet? Eight keys to unlocking a joyful life. A boot camp manual for greater emotional fitness is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Here's a truth bomb. Emotions are contagious, and happiness is a universally desired state. But we tend to forget that we all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstances. Explore the journey of human happiness, how to find it and keep it, with Lisa's documentary film, H-Factor. Where is your heart? Visit HarvestingHappiness.com to learn more. Welcome back to the show. Let's continue the conversation with Eric Maisel that was originally aired in September of 2017. Before the break, we began to talk about the recent election, which has really splayed many families. Um, and Eric, you brought this up, and I think it is so appropriate. And I have experienced this in my own family. So talk a little bit about this, if you would, how to manage. Well, it just seems to run super deep, doesn't it? And uh, the divisions seem um, insurmountable, and maybe they are insurmountable. I mean, one of the tasks of a human being is sometimes to understand that some grieving is necessary and we have to separate ourselves from family members because we really just can't deal with them. Even if we, in, in some sense, really love them, it may be impossible to deal with them in moments like this. I think of the Civil War is another moment, brother against brother. Civilization may be just a very thin veneer over some very powerful impulses in us, and this election has certainly brought up some of those impulses. Well, I think for me, and I'm speaking personally from my own experience, that the challenge became rather than being upset, and I was very upset because I'm like, can't you see, can't you see, but, 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 trying to really get the other person to sell them on my position. And then I took a step back and realized that, you know what, really my only job in this relationship is to love this person. It's it's interesting. Let, I'm going to go to a, a really big parenthesis here. Okay, um, please. <laughs> uh, 
I believe that there's no purpose to life. That is, there's nothing outside of us that stands as the purpose for life. Rather, there are, are, there are our life purpose choices. And if we don't make life purpose choices, we don't actually have life purposes. What that means to me is that everybody has multiple things that are important to them, and they might be contradictory things. And what we're talking about speaks to that. That is, let's say you create your life purpose menu, and on it are relationships and activism and creativity and service and whatever else is important to you. Well, to live your life purposes of relationships and to live your life purposes of activism, one might be confronting the other. So it may be that you're going to be an activist for whatever political side you're on, but still let that not be part of your family relationship because one of your life purposes is to have a loving secure and decent family relationship. So the whole matter of life purpose choosing, I think, is very intricate, and most people don't spend any particular time really thinking through what's important to them or how they're going to get their life purposes onto their everyday to-do list. This is a brilliant point, you know, and I think it asks the question, um, do you want to be right or do you want to be happy? Yeah, and also, do you want to be smart? Uh, I mean, I guess that's in a way the same thing as, as happy. But, you know, lots, again, I'm going to go to a parenthesis here, but often when we try to meet our meaning needs, for me, meaning is a certain kind of psychological experience that, that we want and that we crave and that we can influence. It's not something to seek, not at the top of a mountain or at some guru's feet. It, it's an experience we can create. Well, sometimes the things we do to experience meaning meaning don't feel meaningful in the doing. For instance, mm. if you're an activist and your job this week is to lick envelopes, the whole week may be boring to you, yet you know why you're doing it. If you're a novelist and you're working on your novel, you may hate your novel every day this week and not experience any meaning as you're writing it, and yet you still know why this is a meaningful activity to you. This is a very mature attitude about life, to understand that the things that can provoke the psychological experience of meaning don't necessarily feel meaningful in the doing. And so many things in family life are like that. Something as trivial as laundry or doing the dishes or what have you, they don't feel necessarily meaningful in the doing. But because this is one of our life purpose choices, one of the ways we make meaning, having a family, then we do them more gracefully rather than less gracefully. I think this brings up a really good point um, when, when we talk about the mundane or feeling as though we're struggling with our relationships and we're doing it anyway. Um, the, for me, the question uh, that I like to ask of myself is like, what am I really trying to get to, right? When I, when I do laundry, which is one of my favorite mundane tasks on the planet for several reasons, it's completely mindful. And then when I'm folding that laundry, I'm in each of those creases showing a little love to the person whose clothes that I'm folding. So that's a that's a choice that I've made. That's but right. doing doing laundry, most of us would say is a real like three times nothing, right? Exactly. And I, I think what we're saying speaks to how everyday activities can be taken one way or another way. One of the skills I haven't mentioned, but there are eight skills that I'm um, teach in the book, and just another parenthesis, I don't expect anybody to actually learn eight skills that's beyond <laughs> human endurance, but I think they're interesting, <laughs> and were, were, were a person to try to practice one or another of them, that would improve their lives, but 
one of the eight skills is, is the skill of presence, and I think that's what we're talking about here. And for me, there are two kinds of presence. One is sort of the Buddhist idea of when you peel a potato, you peel a potato. But I've been working with creative and performing artists for 30-plus years, and there's another sense of presence where when you peel a potato, you're also thinking about your novel. And that, to me, is another kind of presence that, that's relatively unexamined, but very important for a creative person's life. Agatha Christie said that every one of her plots for her mystery novels came to her. She was doing the dishes. For Grant Wood, the, uh, the painter, all of his imagery came to him as he milked the cows. There's something about doing these tasks that can be, I don't want to use the word used exactly, but that can be used in a certain way to provoke a certain kind of quietness in us where ideas then percolate up. So for a creative person, there's something about folding the laundry that can be not just loving in the way you describe, but also a really fertile activity for creativity. Yeah. It, I, it, well, it's a place to just zone and allow the juices to flow. I can definitely see that. And I can see how that skill can also be up, applied to the engagement with the challenging family member as well. Yeah, because often, uh, you know, people are sort of just moving at cross purposes in life. And if you're worried about your son's drinking and he comes in the room, you may leave the room because you don't want to have that hard conversation that you know you ought to have. So it's very hard to be present there to his being when you know that what, what ought to happen next is a conversation that you don't really feel equal to. So that's another sense in which we need presence, and that's the presence to stay put in the vicinity of our family members if there's something going on that we need to do. And just on a very practical level, one of the skills that I teach in the book and that I teach clients is if, if you have something you need to say, say it in seven words or fewer with a real period at the end. Because most people start attaching commas and clauses and start half apologizing and half taking the sting out of what they're saying and giving the other person the opportunity to wiggle out of the situation, etc. So it's a, just a great practice to say utterances, sentences of seven words or fewer. It would sound like, would sound like that's not okay with a real period. If somebody is doing something, that's not okay, that's the way to say it. That's not okay with a real period. And most people are not trained in speaking that way and feel really uncomfortable speaking that strongly. Well, when we think about our emotional intelligence levels as human beings, yes, we're all intellectually, you know, bright enough to, to do our lives, but we're not necessarily emotionally aware of this inner life and even what our feelings are. I mean, this is another big challenge that sometimes these relationships become so difficult because we're not even sure what we're feeling when we're in them. That's right. And that's why some of the skills, I'll just run through the skills. Fast. Please, yes. <laughs> the first is smarts. The second is strength. Third is calmness. The fourth is clarity. The fifth is awareness. And that's exactly what we've just been talking about, clarity and awareness. The sixth is courage. That is finding the courage to have that hard conversation with any family member. And the reason that's so hard to do is there are consequences. If yeah. we have that conversation with our son, he may storm out. We may not see him for a week or... You know, if we have that conversation with our husband, we may be down the road of a divorce. So we understand that there are consequences, and that's why it's so fearful to have these conversations. The seventh skill is presence, and, and the last is resilience. And just to speak to that one for a split second, as you said about siblings, we're with them forever. 
we're sort of born together and we sort of end together. And all our whole life, we're dealing with these same dynamics with siblings, which means that there's no way to get something done just once. We have to keep <laughs> We have to keep doing the right thing that we're trying to do, and, and it takes a lot of resilience. It's also a lot of strength to to keep trying to do the right, to, to just keep doing the next right thing. You know, what, as you were speaking, what comes to mind is the relationship itself is being becoming a practice. You know, that we, we practice, we continually practice doing our best to communicate better with that person that we care about without necessarily needing to agree or to be right. And I think therein lies a certain challenge. But ultimately, the reward, I think, can be there. Yeah, and practice brings to mind a really important word. And I I have clients rehearse the interactions that they want to try out in real life. And that's a certain kind of practice, too. And I, I find that folks can very easily not only figure out their part of the conversation, but they they know what the other person is going to say. They've been dealing with this person so long that they can do both parts of that conversation. And so they can really refine what they want to say based on what the other person is saying in this mind rehearsal. And then come to, this is just like an actor learning his lines. It's the same idea of be prepared. It reduces our anxiety levels to be prepared and so by rehearsing these difficult uh, conversations that we know we need to have, we can come to them more strongly and less anxiously. We are nearly out of time, and I wanted to recap those eight points, the eight skills that you've written about in overcoming your difficult family, eight skills for thriving in any family situation. Eric, would you be so kind as to repeat them? Sure. The first one is smarts. That's just uh, understanding smartly what's going on. The second is strength. We have to manifest our strength all through life, but especially in family relationships. Calmness, we need to reduce our anxiety. Clarity, we want to be able to see clearly what's going on around us, including whether we're safe or not, which is a big point that we won't quite get to. Awareness, courage, presence, and resilience. Wow. I highly recommend the book to everybody. To learn more, please visit Eric Maisel at ericmaisel.com. On Twitter, you can connect with him at Eric Maisel. And on Facebook, eric.maisel. As always, it's a pleasure. Come back and hang out with me anytime, Eric. I love speaking with you. Great. I'm, I'd love to come back. All right. We'll do that. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen and my guest today, Dr. Tasha Yurick and Eric Maisel, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Go out and rock your day. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime and anywhere from the comfort of wherever you are. Subscribe, listen, and share hundreds of downloadable episodes via our free app or from our libraries at toginet.com, iTunes, Google Play, and other fine podcast platforms. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit harvestinghappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness is produced in collaboration with Toginet Radio, KBUU net and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.